and welcome to another episode of the Trialed and Tested podcast from Evidence-Based Education and the Education Endowment Foundation. My name is Jamie Scott from Evidence-Based Education and for this part of the podcast I'm joined by Emily Yeomans and Sir John Holman to explore some of the evidence-informed strategies teachers can adopt or focus on to enhance the teaching and learning of science at key stages three and four. Emily, John, hello. Would you mind both introducing yourselves? I'm Emily. I'm a Head of Programme Strategy at the Education Endowment Foundation and I co-authored the report with John Holman. Hello, I'm John. I'm co-author of the report with Emily. I'm a lifelong science teacher. I'm now at the University of York and I've just been elected President of the Association for Science Education. So I'd like to get us started uh, and I'd like to talk about me, or rather the teenage me and others like me. I got off to a reasonable start with science, but I remember it getting harder and falling behind. Thankfully, I got the GCSE results I needed to go on to further education. But this was the point at which science and I sadly said our our goodbyes. Now, I've always been quite inquisitive, enjoyed uh, reasoning, had an interest in philosophy and, uh, for example, loved the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, Not necessarily a scientific mind, but I think things could have gone better. And so, John, I want to ask um, you, how could we have... Uh, improved things for me in terms of engagement in science? Well, I don't want to cast any aspersions on your teachers, but that's what it boils down to. Um, There's a worldwide body of evidence that if you want high achievement in science and high engagement in science, then the teacher is the principal determinant. So if teachers are listening to this podcast, listen on for how you could have engaged you. Um, I think it's very clear that engagement and achievement go hand in hand so and they both boil down to good clear teaching that that evidence is is very clear so one specific thing that your teachers could have done with someone like you uh, is to give you an open-ended project investigation that you could have got your teeth into there's a lot of evidence and we talk about it in the report for people young people when they're given the chance to engage with a question of their own making and they have a bit of time to develop the investigation in their own time, then that leads to much greater engagement. And interestingly, one study shows the gains are greatest for the young people who have the greatest disadvantage. So it's it's a very strong motivator if the teacher can find time to give young people an opportunity to investigate their own problems. And further to that, what advice do you have for communicating or demonstrating the importance of science and and the opportunities that it can bring for young people? Yes, I think for young people, say for if you're 13, 14, and you're in a science lesson, you can actually think, you know, what's the point of learning the equation for photosynthesis? I'm never going to use this in life. It's not something that sort of interests me. And actually, I think if teachers can really kind of link what students are learning in their lessons to something that actually interests them in their real life, that can have kind of real kind of benefits for engagement. And, and I think um, something that grows out of that is the opportunity to link the science that you're teaching to possible future careers. Because young people will begin to be thinking about what am I going to do next? If they can see how something they're learning now in science could lead to an interesting, fruitful and rewarding career, then that's likely to make them engage more. The Department for Education published its career guidance strategy at the end of 2017 and that included a number of benchmarks based on an international study by the Catsby Foundation. One of the benchmarks is called careers in the curriculum and this is showing that if teachers can link whatever they're teaching in science to a possible future career then that is a way of engaging young people not only in the science but also in thinking about their own futures. And presumably this isn't just something that you say once at the beginning of of key stage three or key stage four. It has to be embedded throughout the the, the curriculum and and, and topics and so on. Yes, and it doesn't have to be laboured. It can be quite short. If you're teaching about electromagnetic radiation, you can show all the different ways that electromagnetic radiation is used in medicine, for example, um, in uh, x-ray radiography uh, and in microwave techniques and all the many ways that radiation is used to find out what's going on inside your body. MRI scanning is another. 
these will engage young people by thinking, ah, I could be applying my physics in a medical sector, and that could be helping people to get better, and that could be helping me on the way to a rewarding career. Emily, um, I, I want to talk now about um, people's entering Key Stage 3 uh, with some level of understanding about the world around them and how they arrive at these preconceptions. Yes, I suppose the, the important thing to start with is to say that everyone has misconceptions, so it's not just pupils. So teachers will have them, parents will have them, scientists will have them. So they're, they're things that everyone holds. And obviously preconceptions can be correct or they could be incorrect. And if they're incorrect, we generally call them misconceptions. And the way that pupils get these preconceptions is really just through living life. So they've been out there in the world. Science is really about how the world works. It's about how their body works. So it's about things that children are kind of naturally interested in. So often children have more preconceptions in science, maybe compared to other school subjects. And they could have got them by generating them themselves. So they could have thought, actually, you know, what, what are stars? And they could have just come up with a plausible explanation that makes sense to themselves. It could have come from conversations with an adult, um, where they've sort of started to generate ideas about some of these things. Or actually, it could even come through kind of fictional stories or nursery rhymes. Um, so there's like huge, you know, places that these can come from because, um, you know, children just kind of suck up everything around them. Okay, and so then what are some of the, the, the challenges um, with this? So I suppose there are, there are opportunities and challenges. Yeah. So I think the opportunities are really that, in a way, preconceptions can be viewed in a positive light because it shows actually that children are interested in these things. And so actually if you can kind of harness that natural curiosity, that can be a, be a, real, a real positive. And obviously sometimes preconceptions are correct and actually can act as a really good hook into learning. Um, so if you can help children to kind of uh, expose what their preconceptions are, because sometimes people aren't even aware of their own preconceptions, so you can help them sort of get them into the open. That can be a good starting point for learning and a good opportunity as a kind of launch pad into scientific thinking. Okay, so we're talking about what uh, sort of quizzing, asking questions, creating a dialogue around what some of those preconceptions are and then where they're misconceptions to talk about why there might be misconceptions. Is that the kind of thing? Yes, I think there's lots of ways that teachers can do that. I think the important thing is to obviously make people feel kind of comfortable to talk about their ideas and make it clear that actually all ideas are kind of interesting, particularly at the start of a topic. So to, you could have a whole class discussion, you could record class ideas at the start of a, a topic and kind of keep those up throughout the topic so you can kind of revisit those ideas uh, as, as teaching progresses and say, look how, how our thinking has kind of progressed and changed. Uh, you could do diagnostic questions, <coughs> so obviously that's a multiple choice question, but one of the answers is correct and the distractors are very carefully designed to uncover kind of common misconceptions that, that pupils often hold. Um, and another way is actually to use concept cartoons, and that can be like a very kind of safe way of getting people to talk about their ideas. So concept cartoons often show a group of children all with different ideas um, and you can ask children what they think about those ideas, whose idea they think is most correct, what they think are the problems with the ideas and that's a nice way of kind of showing a range of ideas without people having to expose their own thinking which they might find quite kind of daunting. And we've got uh, in, in, the, in the guidance we've got a lot of suggestions for how teachers might do what Emily is saying which is to find out where the students are first and then act accordingly and that that's the way to deal with misconceptions and preconceptions it's very important isn't it not to rubbish them and to accept where young people are mm. and build on that rather than say oh no that's all wrong we're going to start again you, you must build on where they they're starting from well, yeah obviously with misconceptions 
uh, obviously that's that's these preconceptions that don't fit with the with scientific thinking. Research does show that misconceptions can be very sticky. So it can be things which are very hard to shift. And often that's because a child has held that misconception for a long time. And also they've developed it for a reason. It hasn't it hasn't come from nowhere. So to them that's a very compelling idea. And it's very hard for people to hold two competing ideas in their mind. So, so the, the misconception and the scientific explanation, if they're opposed, that can be hard. And often what happens is that people do learn the scientific explanation, but actually the misconception is much more compelling to them. And so they can revert back to that misconception later. So I suppose the important message for teachers is that uh, overcoming misconceptions can take a long time, but it is definitely worth doing because if you can help people kind of overcome those misconceptions, it can kind of unlock lots of kind of science learning. Particularly because misconceptions are often linked to threshold concepts, and threshold concepts are kind of big ideas in biology, chemistry, and physics, which help to sort of unlock and kind of unify the subject. So an example in biology, which, which is my subject, so I'm a biologist, would be evolution, is something that gives this kind of underlying explanation to lots of what we see in biology. Yes, and, and I think from chemistry, I'm, I'm a chemistry teacher, um, the, the classic threshold concept is the molecular theory of matter, the idea that all matter is made up of small particles and that everything is built up from these small particles. And that, that's a very interesting threshold concept because young people will actually acquire it from all sorts of things, not, to, not necessarily their teacher, um, because the media talk about molecules, they're likely to hear it in, in everyday conversation. So they, they will have come across the molecular theory, but probably not with any idea of the scale of it, for example, how tiny these things are, how all-pervasive they are. And so the teacher's got an opportunity with that threshold concept to build on some partial conceptions, some of which will be correct and some of which will need, need strong building on. So it's well worth, in chemistry, trying to find out what your pupil's prior understanding about molecules actually is and build on that accordingly. Most teachers, I think, will have a, an idea of where students are going to struggle around these key concepts through having taught students before. So actually we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of really good questioning, those hinge point questions as Dylan William refers to them, that really help understand whether or who is, who is ready to move on or whether we can move on or whether we need to go back to some of those underlying principles and, and concepts before yes. moving forward. Yeah, and actually I suppose it's a key part of kind of teacher pedagogical content knowledge. Uh, is really understanding kind of common misconceptions across biology, physics and chemistry um, and obviously in, in the guidance report we have kind of sources of uh, common misconceptions that teachers can use and that definitely is a good starting point but I think the key thing really is to expose the thinking of your pupils. So common misconceptions are a great starting point but actually having that class discussion um, having the opportunities for people to say what their thinking is is also really important because it might not always match with the kind of common misconceptions. An interesting example from chemistry is that um, we, we use the molecular theory to distinguish between solids, liquids and gases, how the, how the molecules are arranged differently in, in those three states of matter. And a t teacher will know that in a gas phase there are molecules with a lot of empty space in between. It really is empty space, it's a vacuum. If you talk to young people, they often, their conception, they, they've got it that gases have molecules that are widely spaced, but they think there's something in between them. Uh, they might think it was pollution or air. Of course, the teacher knows that that's, that that's impossible, it must be empty space. But building on that preconception is a classic way of advancing learning. And a nice little experiment you can do is to simply get a gas and show that it can be compressed put your finger over the end of a bicycle pump and push, you can feel the gas being compressed. Well, the fact it can be compressed means it must have empty space in between and you're squashing the molecules closer together.
Yeah, so that's actually a really good example of how to challenge a misconception. Um, so obviously we talked about the fact that misconceptions can be really sticky and hard to overcome. And one way to help people overcome that is to show them some compelling evidence that doesn't fit with their misconception. So obviously in that case, it's the compression of the gas. Because if their misconception was correct, you won't be able to compress the gas. So actually showing them this contradictory evidence and asking them to think about how that fits with their preconception and whether they need to adjust their preconception as a result of what they've seen is actually a really powerful way of kind of progressing their thinking. And you could actually extend that even further and say to them, for example, do you think a gas could ever be compressed here to zero? And if not, why not? So it's really making sure you kind of have these follow-on questions to help people kind of extend their thinking and also cement their kind of understanding to help them kind of resolve that, that preconception or, or misconception. I mean, what, one thing that is very clear, and we, I hope we make this clear in the guidance, is that assessment is a very important part of a, a teacher's job. And I'm talking about formative assessment here, assessment for learning. And the teacher assessing where the pupils are in terms of their conceptions so that the teacher can move on accordingly. And one thing that we note in the guidance is that often peer assessment is more effective than teacher assessment. So if a young person has got a, a particular kind of preconception that isn't quite the accurate one, to be told it by one of their fellow pupils is actually often more compelling than if the teacher stands up and says it as an authority figure. So I suppose a final thing on kind of preconceptions, just to wrap up like everything we've discussed is, is I often find it kind of useful to think about it as a kind of cycle. So starting off with kind of exposing the preconceptions and identifying which of those are kind of misconceptions, going through to kind of challenging some of those misconceptions, either through showing compelling evidence or classroom discussion. And then through to kind of a, another phase of assessment to see that those misconceptions have been resolved. Again, that could be using diagnostic questions or kind of low stakes tests or peer assessment of, of a piece of work. And then the other thing I think in terms of thinking about preconceptions and misconceptions and the fact that they can be sticky is really the importance of not teaching a, a unit of work and then kind of ticking it off and leaving it. But, and this, this links obviously to the memory section and uh, some of the research about distributed practice and it's the importance of really revisiting ideas throughout the year uh, and giving pupils the opportunity to kind of retrieve what they've previously learned and then obviously if miscon misconceptions have crept back in it gives the teacher the opportunity to actually kind of readdress them later on. And the interesting thing is that it is possible, you can see this in adults as well as in pupils, it's possible to live in two worlds. You live in the real world applying uh, your understanding of moving objects and you know that uh, a car will stop, uh, will stop moving if you stop pushing it. Uh, but Newton's law of, first law of motion says that it will continue uh, without pushing. That's what the law says. So we kind of, I think, put in our heads a combination of what we know from practice and what we know from having learnt about the, the, the principles of, for example, motion. And, and I think all adults actually live in two worlds, and young people live in two worlds as well. What they've, what they've learnt and what they do in a practical situation. Yeah, there's just so much conflict about I think that's what I struggle with most, and do other people struggle with this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, we were talking earlier about the, the gas, gas particles and I think I really struggle with that so I, I kind of you know I know 100% that between gas particles there is a vacuum and nothing is there but I find it really hard to if I just think of that to really believe that in this room there are all of these uh, you know vacuums and then even within the cells in our body obviously most most of an atom is empty space because it's the electrons whizzing around the uh, the nucleus so you've even you've got these vacuums everywhere and I find that actually quite hard to really really believe even though I know it's true. For me my equivalent of your dilemma is is Newton's first law of motion 
because um, I know from having learnt it long ago that things do keep moving unless a force acts on them to stop them moving. That's Newton's first law of motion. That's why the planets keep moving. That's why the, a, a day is always 24 hours because we're moving at the, we're rotating at the same speed. Um, and yet, in practice, I know perfectly well that if my car's broken down and I want to push it, I've got to keep on pushing it. It won't keep running without me pushing it unless it's going downhill. So there's kind of, I think, for every adult and, and for every pupil too, there's a conflict often between what everyday practice tells them, and everyday experience tells them, and what the teacher tells them. And we've just got to live with that. So I uh, came across a word yesterday and I'm just thinking that this might describe in some way what we're talking about, a catalepsy. And so the description of this was the impossibility of comprehending the universe. And maybe that kind of just sums up this whole conflict quite nicely. That's what's great about living in, uh, being a scientist and living in the world of scientific discovery because we'll never get to the point where we understand everything. At least I hope we won't. And as Newton said, I was like a boy on the seashore finding shells and pebbles while the whole ocean of truth lay undiscovered before me. And that's the great thing about science. It's, it goes on and on, and the more we learn, the more we know we don't know. There are also very big opportunities in science to link the curriculum to people's future careers. And the, the government's career strategy published in 2017, uses the Gatsby careers benchmarks, one of which is called careers in the curriculum, encouraging teachers through their teaching to show young people what careers come from the subject they're studying. And of course, in science, there are so many examples of careers that come from, can come from science. But if we're talking about radi um, electromagnetic radiation, for example, in physics, it can be quite baffling and, and quite abstract got all these different types of radiation, radio waves, x-rays and so on. They've all got different properties. But you can show the kind of ways that these radiations are used in people's careers. So a radiographer might well be using x-rays uh, to diagnose um, broken bones, something that young people might well be familiar with. Uh, but they might be using radio waves, different kind of radiation, if they were using an MRI scanner. So this spectrum of what seems rather abstract radiation actually relates very strongly to something that's important to young people, but also is part of the kind of career that they might be considering for the future. I mean, thinking back about you, James, when, yeah. you, were at, when you were at school, um, I th I, probably one of the reasons you didn't engage with science, if you're like a lot of other pupils, is that you, you just thought it was difficult. And yeah. you know, there is evidence that science is difficult. You know, it's pretty hard to get really good grades in physics, for example, yeah. to just take one, one scientific subject. Um, and a lot of young people feel that they understand that science is important. The, 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 the science capital work that Louise Archer and her colleagues have done shows this. They, they get it that science is important, they get it that it leads to future careers, but they kind of got a feeling it's not for them. And the science capital teaching approach has all sorts of ways that teachers can use to try and help to improve the science capital of their pupils, help them to engage more with science, help them to see that it is something that they might pursue. Okay, I would like to move us on now and ask John, uh, building on your comments around engagement, what role does practical work play in improving secondary science? How can we maximise the use of practical work? Well, you're quite right to talk about it in the context of engagement. When the Wellcome Trust, in their tracker, asked young people what made them most motivated towards science, they mentioned, number one, a good teacher, that won't surprise you, uh, but number two, practical work. It is, it is highly engaging and highly motivating. And that, by the way, is not the only reason for using practical work in science, but it's an, it's an important one. But I think the, the, the message that Emily and I would like to get across about practical work is you need to know why you're doing it. Um, young people will come into the classroom, are we doing an experiment today? And it's very easy to simply 
do an experiment because that's what they love doing. There needs to be more of a reason for it than that. And the Gatsby Foundation in the international study that they did um, of practical work found that there, there's a consensus around five purposes for practical work. And teachers really just need to reflect on why any piece of practical work, which of these purposes it might meet. Very briefly, the purposes are to teach the principles of scientific inquiry, to improve understanding of theory through practical experience, to teach specific practical skills such as measurement, to develop higher level skills such as communication and teamwork, and last but not least, to motivate and engage pupils. Those are the five purposes that practical work has. And it, being clear about why you're doing a particular experiment is a very important part of making, using it successfully in science teaching. And is there um, some advice around um, whether practical work can fulfil more than one of those purposes, for example, or, or do we have to stick to one and be quite clear? The answer is yes. Uh, it can easily fulfil more than one purpose, and um, usually does. And by the way, um, experiments don't have to be long set-piece. Uh, in, in the Gatsby International Study, we saw some great examples of very short experiments which permeated the whole of the rest of the lesson. A little five-minute demonstration, a little five-minute experiment from which many discussion points flowed. So it's, it's very important that teachers realise that practical work can be short or long. And it's very important that it's varied. Not always the same kind of experiment every time. And I suppose following on from, from what John's, John's saying there, you know, practical work can be quite overwhelming for pupils in a way, so it can be quite high in terms of cognitive demand. You know, they need to work out where the practical equipment is, they need to remember what a conical flask is, they need to think about setting up their equipment. And so you're actually having this clear focus and communicating that to pupils can be really helpful. So saying to pupils, the point of this practical is actually for you to make really careful observations. Or well, the point of this practical is for you to write down your measurements really well in a table. Uh, or the, the point of this practical is for you to answer your investigation questions, so something kind of slightly bigger there. But having that kind of clear focus for people can be really helpful. And it kind of leads to another point in this section about it can help make the practical activity minds-on as well as hands-on. So instead of pupils just doing something, they're actually kind of carefully thinking about what you want them to think about. Um, and I suppose that, that's the kind of key with practical work and making it as useful as possible. I remember my chemistry teachers, kind of one of my overriding memories of science at school, warning is against, and I think probably what, what happened to him in this experiment made me f perhaps forget what, 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 it, what the experiment was. but. Um, he, he advises at all costs that we shouldn't breathe in the, the, the fumes from the, the chemical reaction. And that's exactly what he, what he did. And he had to run out of the room and outside of the school to get fresh air and came back just, you know, just red, completely puce. Um, and that's just a, a memory from school. So that was your mind's on. That's what you remember from the practical. That's what I remember from the yeah. practical because of, yeah. It yeah, just, yeah. Yes. Emily, I just want to pick up on um, on something you said there. You used the word conical flask, and within the the, the EEF guidance report, um, there's a section on science language. And so, I want to get your thoughts, please, on 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 the importance of science language and and the challenges around it. Yeah. So, I mean, learning science is a huge challenge, partly because of this whole new language that pupils have to learn. And it you know, really is like learning a new language. There's, there's a huge number of new words. Um, and that can be a real challenge for pupils, particularly pupils with a lower literacy level, who might find some of these words quite complicated and challenging. But really for all pupils, so, so that is definitely something teachers need to be aware of and think carefully how to introduce new words. And it's not even just the scientific terminology, it's also these, these words which are used in everyday language, in everyday conversation, but actually have a different meaning when they're used in science. Um, and it's often these words which can really kind of trip pupils up 
and cause people's difficulty because they're, they're used to using it in this kind of everyday sense and using it in a completely different way is, is very confusing, quite rightly. So I know this is something actually that Nikki Kaiser has a lot of good ideas about in terms of um, teaching practices. So it'd be great for you to talk to her about, about some teaching strategies. Practical work is the unique proposition of science. Science is an experimental subject and this is a great asset that any science teacher has, the experiment. And the Gatsby International Study showed that English schools are very well equipped for practical work. We have good labs, we have good lab technicians and, and we are well equipped. And so there it is, use it, because it's an asset that we know works with young people and we know we're well equipped to provide in this country. John, final thoughts please. I'd like science teachers to understand that the job they do is critical for social mobility. Science is the most powerful way that humans have of understanding the world and that power underpins everyday life. Ordinary people going about their life are using science all the time and the manifestations of science are all around them. But it's also vital for people's future careers. There are many rich and rewarding careers that science opens the, opens the door to. Uh, and the attainment gap between the most advantaged and the least advantaged pupils is just as wide in science as it is in other subjects such as mathematics and English. And science teachers, by doing their job brilliantly, can help to close that gap and help to increase the mobility of people who come from the least advantaged backgrounds. Thank you, John, and thank you, Emily. I'm now going to give Nikki Kaiser a call to see what advice she's got for us. Hi, Nikki. Hello, Jamie. Nikki, I've just been speaking to Sir John Holman and Emily from the EEF about the strategies that science teachers can use to support teaching and learning in, in their subject. And so from your experience as a chemistry teacher, I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about what you find to be really practical and useful in the classroom. Yeah, that's that's quite tricky to pull out just a few points from this, actually, but I will do. For me, this report, all the ideas and the principles really feed into each other. They're very interlinked. So for me, I'm really interested in memory, for example. I'm interested in understanding how memory works and how we can use that to help our students to understand things. Um, but I think there's a danger if you don't read about it in the report or you don't read further into it that you just think it's about kind of rote learning or robotic students. And, and for me, memory is so much more than that. It's about freeing up the working memory or freeing up the, the memory so that we're able to do more of the kind of creative stuff that I think real scientists do. I, I talk about it making it easier to do the interesting stuff so on a basic level um i can't think about how ions are going to behave for example in a particular scenario if i don't remember what the properties of ions are or, or let alone if i don't even remember what an ion is so so the you know the memory is there to, to help us to do the more interesting thinking and i, I can't do a a high level interesting calculation to work out something amazing if I'm having to struggle to remember really basic things like what seven times seven is or or even how to arrange rearrange in an equation or, or which equation to use in the first place so for me memory is there as, as a tool to help students to do the science that we want them to do the scientific thinking and in terms of strategies I think Low stakes quizzing is, is a really good starting point. Um, it's something that I think people are beginning to hear more about and do more of. And, and I think that's really important because it um, embeds the idea in your classroom that you're not just 
learning an idea and then moving straight on from it you know it it encourages review um but i think for me the the report the usefulness of the report is understanding why low stakes quizzing might be useful it's not just about answering questions it's about that process of bringing information to mind which in itself is actually something that helps students to learn so for example it doesn't have to be a low stakes quiz it could be i mean a lot of teachers use um no hands up so they'll ask a question to the class they won't say anyone's name and then they will ask somebody in the class what the answer is but because when they ask that question nobody in the class knows who is going to be asked the answer they're all having to retrieve that information so for me this guidance report isn't a how-to guide it's not full of you must go and do this it's think about this and apply it your context think about ways or you know we can help you to find ways of using these really promising ideas and embedding them within your teaching and as i say they they really i think link into each other so another really important aspect of the report is um the section on language and i i've i think i've learned a great deal from working on this particular section of the report because you know we all use language right we, it's something that we do every day but i think for me what's been underlined is that for example reading is not just decoding and decoding definitely is not reading so i could talk to you about um so my postdoc was about euphotic zone photo photosynthesis uh, respiration ratios of phytoplankton now that just doesn't mean anything to anyone that doesn't understand what photosynthesis is for example mm -hmm. so a, a, the average teacher would be able to decode those words but being able to understand what they mean and knowing that photosynthesis is a process that phytoplankton carry out that's a very different thing and the other thing that's a really strong aspect of the, the language section is okay so we have these words now try and take them apart and help students to see those links between scientific words so euphotic zone has photo in the middle which is also in photosynthesis and and so as a an experienced science teacher you probably recognize that's about light that gives you a clue to what the word might mean and and so explicitly pointing these things out to students really helps them to understand the words but also to remember them and to make links between them so i think one of the things that i've really learned from this about language is that reading on its own is not enough um, even understanding what a word means and being able to define it is not enough because actually as scientists if i tell you that the euphotic zone actually does mean what we suspected that it's the region of the ocean where sunlight is able to penetrate then as a scientist i immediately think well that's going to affect the photosynthesis of the phytoplankton but that's a link that i make as a scientist who's used to making these links and and when our students first come across ideas they might not necessarily make those links without mm -hmm. our help mm -hmm. um, and that for me that's that's where modeling comes in so for example the there's a recommendation in there about johnson's triangle which i find a very very useful framework to think about how i explain things so for me if i think about two very common chemistry practicals the electrolysis of copper sulfate where you start with a blue solution and you see red metallic copper literally coming out of solution and then you think of a precipitation reaction where you have two clear sometimes colorless liquids and you see a precipitate forming i can picture that there's a link between those things i can picture that there are solvated ions that that you know that come out of solution but for a for 
my students they wouldn't necessarily make the link between those things because that's happening on a on a microscopic level on a level that we can't see and actually sometimes we can't even imagine mm. so for me the 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 models it's not it's not telling people that this is how it is it's helping students to imagine things that are completely outside of their frame of kind of everyday experience and, and imagination and to see to visualize those things that that they aren't able to see and and i think that brings another point in really that one of the most important aspects of the recommendations around models is that you use them judiciously you don't just so there are three for example there are three models in the report about their models for electrical circuits now the report's not saying use these circuit models it's saying if you use models like these you need to think about what the limitations are you need to help your students to understand what the limitations are and and actually it gives you a framework there's a FARS method that actually helps you to frame their thinking around what the model says and, and what it doesn't so it's not the report isn't this how to teach manual it's uh, this is what we know these are the aspects of, of good teaching that lead to good student learning but how you embed it within your classroom will probably look very different to the way that i do so another example would be around the cognitive load theory now if you take that to the extreme you know extraneous cognitive load we don't want our students to be distracted by other things we want them to focus on the things that we want them to think about so i guess if you took it to its extreme you might say okay I'm going to teach all of my lessons in a completely bare lab. Um, I'm never going to uh, tell any stories um, of interesting anecdotes because I don't want to put myself off and get them thinking about other things. But, you know, we know that's, that's not what it means. But what it does mean is, okay, understand that at times, this is the effect that certain things will have. If you set some work for students, quietly and then immediately go up and say hey, how are you getting on you know then then that's putting them off and it doesn't mean you never ask the students how they're getting on but it just you need to take it into account and and so that's why the cognitive load section also feeds into the practical work section because um one of the things that i do all the time um as a chemistry teacher is um titration practicals um now these are <laughs> very complicated practicals with a whole range of glassware um, and so if you're not careful a titration lesson becomes students saying where are the conical flask kept or you know what is a conical flask or what is this you know long glass tube here in the corner because they've never seen a burette before and how do i fix it and so the whole lesson becomes about the glassware or the the practical you know the the manipulation i guess so what you might do taking this into account is have a lesson a practical lesson that is purely about becoming familiar with the glassware so that's where the purposeful practical comes in the purpose of your practical is to um minimize the extraneous load and to um, to manage the intrinsic cognitive load for a future lesson where you do the whole practical and potentially go on to do the, the calculation as well. But even that's not going to be very successful if you haven't, you know, if, if students are thinking so much about converting their units and things. So that's again where the kind of automaticity of processes comes in. So it all very much um, feeds into each other. Thank you, Nikki. Um, this is finding this really, really interesting and it's really helping me with my understanding. But actually what I'm struggling with is the bit around memory and cognitive load and yeah. overlap might be there. Um, and are they both the same or, or are you talking about memory? Are we talking about retrieval practice? Help me understand it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Um, it will help if you have the at least seen the diagram that's in the report in the report there's a 
a model and it is only a model but there's a model of how we think memory works um, it's obviously not as simple as it is in the model but it's a good enough model to help us to understand how we can help our students better so um, in everyday life um, you experience a lot of things by your senses so you will see things you will hear things you'll touch and smell and 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 so there's lots of things that are constantly um coming in via your sensory memory um that if you didn't forget some of that um then you would be overloaded you you would be kind of sat in the corner rolled up in a ball by the end of the day so necessarily our our brains forget some of what we experience so if i said to you if you sometimes when i when i do some training i'll ask people how many stairs they walked up to get to the classroom and and they won't remember even though they did it maybe 10 minutes ago because that's not useful information for them to retain so in order for us to actually um remember something we have to firstly pay attention to it and if we pay attention to it in some way, then there's more of a chance that it will be encoded to our long-term memory. And our long-term memory is this incredibly powerful um, storage area of our memory. Um, where, and this is where we begin to make links between things and build up schema um, so that we are able um, with practice to um, retrieve things, information from our long-term memory, and then process it in our working memory. So, so ultimately, in terms of learning, one of the definitions people often use of learning is that it's a, a change in the long-term memory, because the short-term memory, you know, <laughs> as the name implies, is 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 short term yeah, yeah. <laughs> so knowing something that, and, and this is why i've talked quite often about you know the difference between learning and performance just because somebody can do something at the end of the lesson unless they can do it next year then i would argue that they haven't learned it you know it needs to go in that long-term memory so as scientists we're often calling on our long-term memory because we not only have a lot of information in there but we've already built up schema within our head we've already made links so i know the structure of an atom and i know that there are attractions between the nucleus and the electrons now that not only tells me about the structure of an atom but it tells me about how likely it is so it so it also explains for me why it is that potassium is more um, reactive than sodium or why it is that fluorine is you know so electronegative there's lots of links that i make that i've already built up in my long-term memory but the processing bit that when we're processing information so when we're teaching students in class and we're asking them to do things they use their working memory and the working memory is a section of the short-term memory mm -hmm. and it is very quickly overloaded mm. so the more that they can retrieve from their long-term memory the freer their working memory is to do the bits that we want them to do, yeah. then the more likely it is that they will be able to do what we want them to do and to retain things in the long term. So as teachers, we're, we're usually working with the working memory. And if we're overloading our students with extraneous information or they're thinking too hard about something that should be fairly straightforward or, you know, there's lots of things that we can do to overload the working memory very quickly. That means that it's going to inhibit their processing and their learning of things and, and particularly encoding this information to the long term memory. But the other aspect of that is that, that the research is very strong on retrieval practice and, and what it says is that the act of testing itself, the act of bringing information to mind, that strengthens that ability to be able to do that and it actually helps students to remember in the long term. Thank you Nikki, that, that <laughs> has re really helped me. 
So what I might do here actually is, is, is just test my understanding by checking it with you. So, so I don't know if this can be really simplified, but I'm going to have a go because I want to check my understanding, thinking back to kind of metacognition and, and uh, evaluating. Yeah, So, so the link between memory and cognitive load. So we want to reduce the cognitive load because uh, short term working memory is very, very limited. And I'm almost thinking now of uh, kind of a portal, a doorway through to uh, longer term memory and, and that very vast long term memory. And if we're trying, if there's too much sort of being thrown at that very small portal or doorway or whatever we call it, then some of it's just not going to get in or we're not going to get in the stuff that we really want students to remember and long term and be able to recall. Is that the right kind of thinking? Yeah, that's that's along the right lines. There's, there's two things I would say. First of all, it's not just about transferring things to the long term memory. It's also the ability to process the information as well, which is where the working memory comes in and which is what we use the working memory for. And the other thing is that, yes, we want to reduce the extraneous load. So that's the distractions. Yes, we want to manage the intrinsic load. So that's just how difficult something is so really that's mm. helping our students to get there but then, <laughs> then there's another type of cognitive load called germane load now that is all about getting students to think hard so that these memories are retained in the long term so that's the one we want to maximize so it's not quite as simple as cognitive load bad. <laughs> it, you know, some of it is something we want to judiciously use. But yes, that, that's exactly right. We're, we're trying to stop overloading our students so that they remember more. And so we're starting to get into there. I think you're talking about desirable difficulties, making learning. Yeah. And the kind of Robert Bjork, uh, Robert and Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, research there. OK, well, I definitely have some processing still to do, I think, around this. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is test you in a year's time to make sure you still remember. Okay. <laughs> and I know you've really learned it. <laughs> right. OK, yeah, you can hold me to that. See you in a year's time. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nikki. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this episode of the Trialed and Tested podcast. Thank you to our guests, Emily Yeomans, Sir John Holman and Nikki Kaiser. And finally, thank you for listening.